Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Spoke Media. Not Sorry Productions. So when I was in like seventh or eighth grade, I remember the first romance novel that crossed my path because I was in Miss Frost's English class and the bell rang and I was minding my own business. I was packing up my bag and my friend Priya came over to me with a copy of this book and it was held open at a certain page and she like thrust it at me and she said, read this. And it was a very graphic sex scene, or at least I thought so, because I was like 12 or 13. And I was absolutely scandalized, and she was scandalized. Um, And it turns out, I actually Googled my way to this answer. It was The Pregnancy Test by Erin McCarthy. And I think that was my first brush with a romance novel. That's this week's writer, Marissa Martinelli. Hers is a prototypical story for how young women find romance novels. Right around the time they are learning to find shame in their changing bodies, they also find a shelf of books behind a shelf of books at their grandmother's house. Or they steal a book off of their mom's night table. Or a friend secretly hands them the pregnancy test in Ms. Froth's English class. I handed a fellow bunkmate the sexy book I had just finished at a hostel in Salzburg in June of 2001. And she didn't leave the hostel for the whole next day staying in to read the steamy book. She missed joining a bunch of us going on the Sound of Music tour. It was that sexy. We love romance novels for more than the sex. If we wanted just sex with the female gaze at the center, we'd read erotica, and we do. But the sex is what keeps us up late at night, unable to put the books down. We love romance novels for more than the sex, yes but we also love them because of the sex. And yet, not one of the writers for this podcast so far has written a sex scene. There were audible sighs of relief when we told them that they didn't have to write one. Our writer this week, Marissa Martinelli, is a staff writer at Slate and a pop culture soulmate of mine. She is writing the trope of mistaken identities and is really, really going to write a sex scene. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered.
Marissa is a dutiful writer. She's used to writing on a deadline, having goals set for her, and reaching them. She does it every day at work. So with the task of mistaken identities in front of her, we got on the phone, and she was ready to jump right in. Okay, so I'm kind of thinking about, like, a fantasy romance. Ooh! Um, (laughs) uh, Which is very on brand for me. I briefly flirted with other genres. I considered historical romance for Hot Minute just because I think that's what I've been reading the most of. Um, I thought about sci-fi. I'm not really into vampires or demons necessarily, but I thought of like a like a lesbian space opera. But I think I will save that for my second romance novel. So I think I'm going to do a fantasy romance. And I really did get attached to this idea around mistaken identity and royalty. Um, so my main character is going to be a member of the palace guard in this fantasy universe and she's going to be mistaken for the princess but it is not a case of her pretending to be the princess for any to gain anything it's going to be a case of she was protecting the princess and she is similar looking and for the princess's safety she assumed her place um she's a gifted strategist she's sort of a warrior type and palace life she finds very banal protecting the princess is not very exciting She's tired of dinner parties. She's longing for excitement and adventure. Ooh, she's a Disney princess. Well, she's not a princess. I know, but she's a Disney, you know, that character of like, out of the sea. I long to be more. I long to live. Yep. I'll write her an I want song. <laughs> and I, that's what they're called. I want songs. Exactly. To be honest, mistaken identities is not a trope that does much for me. I am so into consent. One of the sexiest things that ever happened to me was at the end of my first date with my now partner, Peter, when he asked if he could hug me goodnight. I started to fall in love with him right then and there. I love it when people make fully informed decisions and then have to deal with the real world consequences of those decisions. So the idea of not knowing who someone is and falling in love with them and then forgiving them for their huge lie, it's just a lot for me to deal with. I know that certain people are into it, the mystery, the reconciliation, but it's so hard for me that I wanted to know why Marissa chose it as her trope. I think part of the appeal is that uh, the love is what's important and everything else is just details. So. I think one thing about it that is lovely is this idea that you can have two people fall in love and all of the other factors, you know, social class or gender in a lot of mistaken identity stories are almost irrelevant. They're sort of removed from the equation. And whether it's an obstacle at first or an obstacle later, what matters is the person as opposed to the identity. Yeah, Right. Right. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes. No, I think that that's exactly it. And so there's a fundamental belief at the heart of mistaken identity stories that like there is a sort of soul or identity that is separate from all social trappings. Right. Like is someone who's like not like I don't love my body. Right. Or like there are things about myself that I don't like. So the idea that there might be identity markers that somebody could just like see past and love my soul is 
a lovely thought. I had never thought of mistaken identities like that. That's such a lovely fantasy to want to spend some make-believe time in. That someone could have no idea who your family is, what your job is, how much money you make, but still love the essential you-ness of you. It would mean that on some level, we believe that we are inherently lovable and that nothing else about us matters. Because the two characters in mistaken identities romance novels have to love each other without knowing anything significant about each other, a lot of that love is usually expressed through physical connection, attraction, and chemistry. And so it was super lucky that Marissa was game to write a sex scene because they are helpful in this trope. I mean, I, I I want to. We'll see. Like, it might when it comes down to it, I might like not find a place for it. But also, like, mom, don't if you're listening, like, don't listen. <laughs> Stop. Um, like, there's that element of like, are people who I know going to read this? That's so embarrassing. I think I still am sort of like 13 years old. I totally. I would not. I don't think I would put out a romance novel and admit to it if there was a sex scene in it. I would take out the sex scene. I'm a total baby. Yeah, yeah that element of like, gosh, people I know are going to read this and be like, she was sitting at her laptop typing this while she was on the train. <laughs> Dirty broad. If you do it, you will be the only one of our 10 writers to actually write a sex scene. I'm definitely going to do it then. Every one of them has talked a big game and then not written a sex scene. So I don't know if I'll be able to read it to you without laughing, but... I'm going to write it and take it very seriously. I've teased my friends for not wanting to write their sex scenes, but I totally get it for exactly the reason that Marissa is pointing to here. Sex scenes are scary to write because we assume that any sex scene someone writes is their secret sexual fantasy. Because we don't talk about sex with each other, we sort of think that our imaginations are limited when it comes to writing hot sex. You can only really write well about what you know. But sometimes you can know things outside of your own experience. Like, I could, in theory, write about what it's like to be in an MFA fiction program, even though I've never been in one, because I have a friend who is in one and she reports back. But even though she describes all of her classes to me and what it's like to be in that program, she does not then describe all of her sexual encounters with her partner to me. Because we don't talk a lot about what turns us on, what doesn't, what works for us, what our partners are good at and bad at, we assume that all of us, when it comes to writing about sex, are not only writing what we know, but what we've personally experienced. And so writing a sex scene just seems so damn vulnerable. The fact that writing sex scenes is so personal, and sex scenes are in almost every romance novel, is in large part why most romance writers use fake names. Pseudonyms are part and parcel of writing romance novels so that authors can write sex scenes without fear of judgment. And our writers on this podcast are not anonymous. I have them tell you a lot about themselves. Their photos are on our websites. So of course they are having a hard time writing sex scenes. Marissa was our one writer who is interested in maybe being risky enough to write a sex scene. And of course, appropriately, she was also our one writer who immediately started thinking about pseudonyms. I thought it would be fun to do a play on my actual name. So uh -huh. my 
last name that I use professionally is Martinelli. So I thought maybe mm-hmm. Ellie Martin uh-huh. would be kind of fun. But then I was like, yeah. that's not ethnically specific enough. I want to, having an Italian name just works really well for writing romance to begin with. So rather than go Anglican, I thought, what about Mariana Martella? Ooh. It's like close to my name, but it's way fancier. Even with the pseudonym, it's hard. But I believe that Marissa can do it. She's a professional writer. She hits a word count every day, writing about things that sometimes she has no interest in. She believes that people are capable of writing completely fictional sex. She's not even Marissa anymore. She's Mariana, so of course she can do it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Marissa and I got back into the studio a little while later. And of course, the first question I asked was how her sexing was going and if she still wanted to write one. Okay, did you write a sex scene? Did I write a sex scene? I did write a sex scene. Yes! Uh, I wrote like 10 sex scenes, each more difficult to write than the last, and deleted all of them. Wait, say more. So I was like, I'm definitely going to write a sex scene it will be easy and fine. And then when I was confronted with the cold, lonely process of actually writing the sex scene, I was like, this, like writing a romance novel, is so much harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) I was like embarrassing myself. I was like, no human can read this. What about it was, what was bad? Why did you delete it. Like, did you not know where the penis went? I didn't know what to call the penis. I was like, every possible euphemism is either disgusting, like member. (laughs) Okay. That's not happening. Or like frou-frou. Yeah, no. Like his quivering sword. (laughs) Or it was like, do I come out and say cock? That doesn't really <laughs> fit the vibe. And I don't want to say penis because it sounds so clinical. So that was definitely a problem. Yeah. I like, I really do think that the sweet spot on penis in romance world is himself. Oh, he put himself inside her, that kind of thing? Inside her. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, yes, let's stay totally vague and like a little bit polite about this. It reveals my comfort level. 
That's interesting. Maybe I'll try again with that in mind and play coy. This is one of the jokes within romance, right? In my experience, it's one of the two things that I get asked about by non-romance readers when they find out that I am a romance reader. They want to know how I can live with the covers, and then they make a joke about throbbing members and heaving bosoms. The truth is that I don't even notice the throbbing members anymore. They're just part of the language of romance. But it is curious that we use so many euphemisms for anatomy in romance novels. We don't try to find a million different ways to say love in the genre. So why can't we just use anatomical words in our sex scenes? The answer is obvious. It's because we've been trained to be afraid of talking about sex. If we ask about it too young, we're pervy. And if we're too old, we're, well, pervy. There are so many rules for talking about sex. And women don't have whole locker rooms dedicated to it the way that men do. And so what women do is what marginalized groups have always done to talk about the things that the mainstream doesn't want us to talk about. We turn talk about sex into whispers and secrets and throbbing members. All oppressed groups do this. They make up coded language in order to talk about the things that feel dangerous to talk about in the open. Capoeira is a kind of dance and martial arts that came out of Afro-Brazilian slavery. The enslaved people wanted to teach each other ways of fighting, but they would have gotten in trouble if they were explicit about it, so they made it look like dance. And if women can't talk openly about sex without consequences from the patriarchy, then they invent inoffensive euphemisms in order to talk about sex. Codes can lead to beautiful languages of dance, but they are also a sign that someone is not free to be explicit. So I think that it's a little bit sad that in a moment when women are finally free to say the words me too, we still don't feel comfortable being explicit about sex. But I couldn't quite figure out if using code was a sign of power or of weakness, if it was healing or hurtful. And so I turned to Nicole Perkins, one of the smartest people who I could think of, who talks regularly about romance novels. Nicole is the co-host of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit and The Waves, and she's also an incredible writer and brilliant thinker about romance language and novels in general. So, Nicole, you are a woman who is very comfortable talking about desire, a cultural critic, and somebody who thinks a lot about language and the way that we talk about sex. Yeah, true. I would agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. And so I'm wondering what you make of romance language, the fact that we say things like heaving bosoms instead of breasts, or that we say throbbing member instead of penis. Just what do you think? Um, Well, I mean, when you're actually in the act of sex, you know, your partners are not usually going to be like, oh, yeah, here's this penis. Take this penis. Give me your breast. You know, so when you're in the actual act, you are very rarely um, using anatomically correct language. You know, you're using hopefully whatever your partner likes, whether it's something very filthy or just kind of those coded words like, you know, your essence or your soul or something like that. But I I don't think it's anti-feminist to use that language. I think part of it, it is coming from a world of bias um, and maybe some sexism. 
in that women have traditionally not been allowed to be vocal about desire and vocal about the things that they like and what gives them pleasure sexually. And so in order to get people comfortable with talking about it, you have to use these, um, you know, these euphemisms and throbbing member it has its place still, even in 2019, in historical romances. If you're having a contemporary romance that uses that language, it's not going to go over very well. <laughs> so I've I've read, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but I've read historical erotica where there's definitely like, I'm going to fuck you and this is my cock and, and that kind of thing. Um, give me your tits or whatever, you know, and even like just talking about it right, like right now, it's awkward, right? Because we are so used to these words in a very specific context. So when they're in a context of romance novels and you're trying to make sure that people are okay with this desire, it's kind of like you don't want to scare anybody just yet. You kind of have to like walk them into the water of being explicit a little bit. God, I love that point. I mean, we, t- we talk about it in terms of nicknames, right? That like a lot of people call me Nena and I'm like, don't call me that until we're friends, right? You got to, you got to call me Vanessa for a little while. Right. It would be like if, you know, called someone's penis a throbbing member too soon, it'd be like, whoa, you guys aren't on nickname terms yet. You got to (laughs) be friends first. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's even like, um, in romance novels, when before there's any kind of real physical contact between uh, a man and a woman, the woman will see his arousal, right? You know, again, yeah, that's a code word. Exactly. His bold, his arousal. And she'll either shy away from it or be, you know, curious about it. But it's not until she actually has given herself permission to touch him that we get more of the physical descriptions of him. Like when she's actually, you know, undressed him or asked him to undress, then you, you may get like a description of the color. Um, I've definitely seen, you know, descriptions of purple and healthy pinks and things like that Um, and veins and all that kind of stuff. And so again, that's all like, once it becomes a bit more explicit um, and more descriptive, you realize that's when the passion is skyrocketing, that is consensual, and that she is, the the heroine is ready for whatever's about to happen. So my sort of theory on this is that I'm like more scared of men than ever. There is such vitriol right now that I've never crossed streets faster to get away from, like, a group of 15-year-old boys. I'm like, you feel like you have nothing to lose and, you know, no sense of consequences. And so I feel like language like throbbing member signals to me, like, this is a safe man because the female gaze is on him and she is turned on by him. So I feel like the codes of this sort of, like, really silly language— actually signifies a lot of like positive things for women. Right. And usually when you're talking about something like throbbing member, it's because it's actually in the heroine's hands and she can feel it. And so she that's usually a sign of consent and that she is moving forward and that she has some sort of agency about what's about to happen. And so she's able to take control of the moment and she feels his response to her and she knows it's about her and not anyone else. Because when you're walking on the street and and these 15-year-old boys are saying terrible things to you or 
grown men are looking at you and saying terrible things to you, you know, they're just doing that because they see you as somebody who is female and they want to have some sort of power over you in that moment, or they want to make you uncomfortable or whatever. But in the confines of a romance novel, and then this woman is holding this man's member or his um, tumescence or whatever the language is, you know that it's all for her and that she has created this response in him and it is specific to her and she feels comfortable in moving forward with with whatever's about to happen. Do you think that in an ideal world where, you know, rape culture is in a much healthier place slash not existing and um, we've, you know, had some sort of like truth and reconciliation committee for the Me Too movement. Like, do you think that we move away from these kinds of words or do you think that they've like been sort of reappropriated positively for women? What do you think? Well, I think what people misunderstand about feminism and women who are trying to be sex positive is that feminism is about choice. So um, when you only have one way of talking about something, it becomes constrictive and people will fight against it. And so that's why you have things that move to what some people consider too far left, like a slut walk or something like that, where you're trying to reclaim these um, derogatory terms. So in the world of romance novels and this language, I don't think that we need to necessarily move away completely from throbbing members and, you know, his arousal, his bulge or whatever, his manhood, those kinds of things. You still need to give the choice because not everybody is going to be at a point where they feel comfortable calling themselves a slut or where they feel comfortable naming, you know, saying dick or whatever. Um, so I think we need to still leave choices up to the readers and up to women to use whatever language or to read whatever language they feel good about. It always surprises me when I'm reading reviews of romance novels, particularly ones that are contemporary and kind of steamy, to see people complain, it's just too much sex in here, or it's um, they just use the F word so much. And I'm just kind of like, well, what are you expecting? <laughs> like, it's a, it's a romance novel that takes place in the 2000s, there's going to be a bit more boldness about it. So I think people just kind of get, I don't want to say overwhelmed, but I think they only, they just, they just want one idea of romance novels and that's not acceptable. That's kind of something that we've been pushing against since romance novels became very popular in the 70s. And we don't need to move away from that language, but I think we need to accept that there are many different ways of saying the same thing. And it's okay to figure out what you as a reader feel comfortable with. I'm sort of okay with there being an inside group who doesn't laugh at throbbing members while the rest of the world laughs. We know that throbbing member signifies that it's not just a penis but it's a penis that a woman is looking at with her gaze and is enjoying looking at. We know that throbbing member means that good, loving sex is about to happen. It doesn't mean penis. It means you're safe to be turned on here. Coded language does not necessarily mean that we are scared and hiding. It is a way for the powerless to take power. The code that I'm not sure I'm okay with is falling in love with your kidnapper 
which Marissa is also dealing with in her novel. Remember, the main guy kidnapped our protagonist, thinking that she was the princess. How are you supposed to fall in love with that? So one thing that I want to make sure that we get to before our time is up is I'm wondering how you have continued your thinking on falling in love with your kidnapper. Basically, what I've landed on is this is war. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, he decides that he can't go through with it, Mm -hmm. just as she decides they have to go through. She has to go through with it, and he has to deliver her to whoever the client is she doesn't know so she can find out. Yeah. Uh, The ethics are squicky for him, but I also think I'm not as opposed to squickiness in fiction, I think, as some people. I think squickiness should be in fiction as opposed to in the real world. It's a healthy place to explore those themes. And in discussing fiction, right? Because then we can talk about what what exactly about this is wrong, what exactly about this makes it okay. Whereas I don't want to be the one who's adjudicating what exactly about the women who are, quote unquote, choosing to stay with R. Kelly. Like, I like I don't have enough information. I just want to call him a criminal. I Like, that is not a place in which I want to see nuance. But I do want to talk about the nuance of situations like that to better understand my thoughts and feelings. And so if somebody writes a slightly squicky, you know, romance novel with these things at play, I think that that is the productive and helpful space to discuss it. Marissa is saying that there isn't just a code for what we call things in romance, the heaving bosoms and the fake names. She's saying that all fiction is its own delicious, invitational code. She's saying that, yes, we need different roles for fiction because it's a place of metaphor. It's in translating the metaphor back to real life where we have to be careful. Hopefully what we take back into the real world is knowing that everyone deserves our empathy not that you should love your kidnapper. Before we go, there was one last mistaken identity plot in Marissa's love story. Can I tell you a really funny story that I haven't told you until now? Yes, please. So when you first emailed me Uh about writing a romance novel, you know, we'd met once. We kind of found that we were pop culture soulmates, like we had really similar tastes. And then you told me about the podcast and I was so excited. And you said in the email something to the effect of like, you don't secretly want to write a romance novel, do you? And I sincerely did not know you were serious. I thought you were kidding. I thought it was banter. So I wrote back like, of course, that's always been my secret desire. And you were serious. And I did not realize what I was agreeing to. But you were so excited about it. And I like sat there and I was like, I was like, why couldn't I write a romance novel? Like real talk, like now that it's out there in the universe, why shouldn't I write a romance novel? So that is why I'm writing a romance novel, Vanessa. That is hilarious. So this is a problem that I have in my life. I am so sarcastic. I have, like, destroyed people's trust in me to the point that when I'm serious, they don't believe me. This is terrible. I'm so sorry. You shouldn't be. I'm really happy that I agreed to do this to get out of an awkward social situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, 
also, let's talk about that. That seems like a real extreme to go to, to not, like, politely let down a basic stranger. (laughs) That's not exactly what happened. I mean, once the idea was out there and I realized you were serious, you wrote something like, can we talk on the phone? And that was sort of an opportunity for me to be like, oh, wait, I did not realize you were serious. But I did seriously consider it at that point and think about it and what it would entail. And it just, it, it, it was the kind of thing like, it would never have occurred to me that I could do something like this until you put it out in the universe. This is a case of mistaken identities. It is in some ways. We had a meet cute and then we had a comical misunderstanding and then I maintained the deception. Oh man, now I'm like reeling from, I thought I thought this relationship was one thing and it turns out that I've like basically emotionally manipulated you into doing something you had no intention of doing. I think in the best possible way, this is the best possible mistaken identity outcome. And now for this week's very timely assignment from Julia Quinn. Hi, Julia. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, because it is sex scene day. How are you? (laughs) Scared. (laughs) Oh, come on. You write such great sex scenes. Yeah, I'm scared to talk about them with you specifically. Here's the thing. The reason why is that all of our authors said that they would write a sex scene, and literally none of them did. So I'm like, there is something in this that is just, like, too terrifying to people. So what is your advice? Like, what elements does a good sex scene need? Okay. Well, the number one thing is you need to make sure that the sex scene actually serves some sort of purpose in the story other than just to be a sex scene. I have read books where, you know, they close the bedroom door and there's no sex scene, and I've feel kind of disappointed. And then I've also read books where I find myself just skimming through the sex scene. I'm like, still, again. And I thought about this for a while because it seems like it's a bit of a contradiction. Like why, in some cases, am I like, what happened? Where's my sex scene? And some I'm just like, enough, enough, enough. Get out of the bedroom. And what I realized is that in a romance novel, it, it has to serve some sort of purpose. And something has to happen. The characters have to learn something about each other. There there just has to be something more to it that that makes it important, that makes them fall in love with each other a little bit more. So, Julia, you helped me think of, like, one of the differences between romance and erotica, which is that sex scenes in romance tend to also propel the characters forward in some way. But is there mm-hmm. anything else that you think, like, really makes a difference between romance and erotica, like if it's too detailed, if it's too anatomical, or do you think that the plot bit is the real difference? It really is, you know, what is the crux of the story? Is the story about two people falling in love and the scenes of intimacy and sex are a big part of that? That is a romance. If it's really more about the exploration of your sexual desire and your bodies and that sort of thing, that's erotica. And I would say in the past, 
the difference was also partially defined by how explicit or how kinky it got. But these days, there's a lot of really, really hot, spacey romance. And that sexual relationship is still a big part of two people really, truly getting to know the other one and falling in love. And so that is a romance. It's, you know, some people have different desires and different needs and wants in their sexual relationship. Okay, so one more question about the sex scene. So I feel like everyone has like a sense for, right, like you're overcome by lust, like sex scene starts. What's a great ending to a sex scene? Well, hopefully an orgasm. Wow. Ask an obvious question. Get an obvious answer. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying, if you want a great ending. um, Okay. Well, I think it's really nice to end it with one of the characters, whoever it's, you're probably in one character's POV. The, you know, whoever's POV you're in, coming to some kind of like realization, like some sort of happy realization about yourself or the other person. Okay, everybody, this assignment this week is simple. Go write a sex scene. Do it. And now for a quick phone call with, that's right, my mom. Hi, mom. Hi, mommy. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm going to tell you a story today. Okay. Erica Kletsky was over and we were hanging out upstairs in my room and you were downstairs with Sharon. Right. And Erica told me that you and dad had sex because sex is how babies are made. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And then she told me what sex was and I got really mad and I ran downstairs and I said, is it true that you and dad had sex in order to have babies? And you said yes. And then I got really mad at you. Do you remember that? I remember Erica telling you and you being appalled. I don't remember your being mad. You're coming down to me and being mad at me. I was mad that Erica was right. I wasn't mad at you. Oh. I was mad that you confirmed that Erica was right. That makes sense. Especially since Erica was younger than you. Yeah. I yeah. felt so naive. Yeah. If you could go back, were, was that like a relief that somebody else told me? Or do you wish that you had like had the opportunity to have a sex talk with me? For a parent to have a sex talk with their child is always awkward. I think a child would also be embarrassed. The child generally will hear from their friends and the parent can confirm or or say where it's wrong. And I think that's a lot easier for both. So you're glad that Erica told me? I'm not glad. I obviously hadn't given it any thought at the time. And I don't remember how old you were, but I know you were quite young, meaning under 10, I think. So there had been no need for it. And I don't know why it came up from Erica. Well, so here's my other question for you. Fast forward like 20 years minimum. I remember I read Outlander by Diana Gabaldon and I loved it. And you're a big reader. And so I wanted you to read it. But I remember feeling really mixed about it because it was the first book that I was going to recommend to you with like really explicit sex in it. And I was like, this is going to be so weird knowing mom is reading a sexy book. When you read it, did you think it was weird knowing that I had read a sexy book? No, I didn't. And the truth was I only read the first book. I just didn't like it. 
they were very grubby and they, they always seemed dirty and sweaty. And it was just, it wasn't for me. More. I, I know, but why do I have to put myself into that environment? Let me go to the castles and palaces and gardens anytime. Well, now do you think it's weird when I recommend sexy books to you? Not at all. I look forward to your recommendations. On the contrary. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. I'll talk to you later. Bye, Mommy. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. If you want to read Marissa's story or if you want to share your writing assignments, go to our website, hotandbotheredrompod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Rompod and please support us on Patreon. It is what allows us to keep making this podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Our romance teacher, as always, is the brilliant Julia Quinn. We are a co-production of Not Sorry Productions and Spoke Media, executive produced and co-written by me, Vanessa Zoltan, and Ariana Nettleman. Our production team is Chelsea Erson, Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Hannah Goldbach, Janielle Kastner, Caroline Hamilton, Jenna Hannum, Will Short, Alexander Mark, and Jonathan Villalobos. Our music is from First Calm and by Nick Bull. Special thanks this week to Terry Tempest-Williams and my mom. Thanks, Mom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.